Yes, sir. Thank you, brother. Yeah. Hey, I never get a clap at our church. So there's that. I just want to say what a privilege it is to be here. And Ryan, it's all downhill after 50, I'm telling you. Anybody? Yeah. So, um, but it's really good to be here. It's an honor and a privilege. And just know that there's like-minded churches around that are supporting you here. Um, a great, solid, Bible-preaching, Christ-exalting church. They're very rare, and so we are for you guys. So it's good to be here. Let's have a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for this time. We are grateful for it. We pray that you would bless the preaching and receiving of your word, that your spirit would go forth through this preaching of your word, that as your word is uh, given, that your spirit would move, convicting us, teaching us, helping us, encouraging us, rebuking us where it's needed, and just working your good work in us. So, Lord, bless this time. Bless each soul that is here. May you be greatly glorified. Give us ears to hear. And may you bless this church as they seek to glorify you in this city. So, bless them. Encourage them. Use them greatly. And may uh, your truth go forth. And uh, may many lost souls get saved. And may the saved grow. And uh, may you move mightily through this. So bless their faithfulness, Lord, and we thank you for this time now. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So you're going through Ephesians, right? Yeah, so are we. So you're getting... (laughs) We're jumping ahead a few chapters to Ephesians chapter 5. So please turn with me in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 5, verses 15 through 17. Ephesians chapter 5, 15 through 17. That's a couple years away, right, Ryan? couple years away it would be for us right all right Uh, the letter of Ephesians was written by the apostle Paul to the Christians living in the city of Ephesus Paul wrote this while he was under house arrest in Rome and he wrote it to lay a solid doctrinal foundation for these believers so that they could then live out those doctrines for the glory of God so what then is the call now that we are saved and now that we've been made new the call is this To live like a beloved child of God more and more and more because this is now who you are. Paul's been very practical thus far in Ephesians for what this should look like in the life of a true believer. And he's also been very challenging. But because we love God so very much, then this is what we pursue until we finally arrive in glory. So, while no one here will be perfect this side of heaven... And while we all struggle with sin and while we all battle against sin until we die, look, our aim is clear. Our direction is clear. Our love is clear. Our lifestyle is clear. So we fight sin and we battle for the God-honoring life because this is who we are. And love for Christ compels us forward. Look what Paul says next, chapter 5, verse 15. See then that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Now here in today's passage, we see five great truths that we need to be constantly applying to our lives as children of light and as lovers of God. First, walk circumspectly. Note how Paul begins verse 15 by saying, See then. 
The word used here means therefore, and it's a term of conclusion. And so it certainly draws us back to the immediate context to wake up, but it also takes us back to the beginning of this practical application section beginning in chapter 4, verse 1, where Paul implored his readers to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. In 4.17, he went on and said to walk no longer as the Gentiles also walk. And then in 5.2, he said to walk in love. And then in 5.8, he said to walk as children of light. So when Paul says, see then that you walk, he's not just taking us to the preceding verse, but he's taking us back to the theme of a worthy Christian walk, which speaks of the believer's aim, direction, atmosphere, and lifestyle. Here, Paul adds another caution for us when he says this, walk circumspectly. Circumspectly has the basic meaning of being accurate and of being exact, of being careful and of being watchful. It carries with it the idea of looking at, of examining, and of investigating something with great care. It means that you're alert, that you're aware, that you're careful and you're not careless or casual about things, spiritual things, eternal things. So if you sweep the floor, you make sure that all the corners are swept. If you make your bed, you make sure all the wrinkles are gone. If you wash your hands, you make sure you get underneath your fingernails. So you're not sloppy. You're not happy-go-lucky. You're not whatever happens, happens. No, but you're very careful. You're watchful. You're attentive to detail. You're diligent. You're alert. You're not caught off guard. And the call here is to be like that when it comes to your Christian life. This clearly tells us that how you walk, how you live as a Christian, is something that is to be taken very, very seriously, with great care and with great watchfulness. Picture a beautiful flower garden that's surrounded by a high wall. To keep intruders out, the owner of the garden placed hundreds of pieces of broken glass into the cement on top of that wall, for that will certainly keep all the intruders out. But then one day, the owner looked up and he saw an old cat walking on the top of that wall. How? How did the old cat do it? Very carefully. See, that old cat made it all the way to the other side of the wall by carefully placing his feet in between those little pieces of broken glass and he never ever cut one of his paws. And that's a good picture of what it means to walk circumspectly in this sinful world. Here's another picture. You're a soldier on patrol in a minefield. How are you going to get across that minefield? Very, very carefully. And that's how we're to walk as Christians. One said, we must choose our steps carefully because the enemy has strewn the path with dangerous obstacles that will cause us serious harm if we are careless. And he's absolutely right. Because if you're careless about how you walk as a believer, then you're going to step on a mine. And you're going to make Satan your enemy very, very happy. We don't want that. No. We have to walk circumspectly because sauntering through the spiritual minefield of this present life won't end well for you. You can't saunter through it. You've got to be careful. So the warning. This is, this is serious, right? This is serious. This isn't a game. Eternal things are at stake here. Now question, why do you think Paul says to walk circumspectly? Because he needed to say it, right? 
Because many Christians don't walk circumspectly back then and today. No, they stroll through the spiritual minefield. They get spiritually sloppy. They let things slide, spiritually speaking. They let seemingly little sins creep into their lives, which quickly gets out of hand. They let their spiritual guard down. They think they are better and stronger than they really are. They settle into spiritual mediocrity and they aren't diligent about spiritual things. They they just go with the flow. But the flow is away from God. The flow is away from the God-pleasing life. You know what happened to the Ephesian church? The church in Ephesus was most likely started by Priscilla and Aquila who were a very gifted couple that God used greatly for His kingdom. Later on, we find that the Apostle Paul himself came and pastored the church for a period of three years. After Paul left, Timothy came and Timothy pastored the church for a period of a year and a half. Later on after that, John was there to pastor the church in Ephesus. Now think about that. Think about that group of pastors. Paul, Timothy, John. I mean, What could be better than that? And how could this church in Ephesus ever go wrong with a foundation like that? Paul even warned them to be on guard because spiritual wolves were coming. But evidently, they weren't careful. They weren't circumspect. Soon, false teachers arrived. Soon, sin crept in. And less than 40 years after the church was started, and 30 years after Paul wrote Ephesians, Jesus said these words to the church at Ephesus in Revelation 2.4, You have left your first love. Think about that. That, that is devastating. How does that happen? Well, it happens when you don't walk circumspectly, when you're not spiritually alert and awake. See, they weren't careful. They didn't guard their lives and they didn't guard their doctrine. They let spiritual things slip that eventually brought them down. They they sauntered through the spiritual minefield and they paid a very high price for doing that. So this is a warning for all of us here. For this church and for each individual Christian here. In the book Pilgrim's Progress by John Bunyan, there's a point where the main character named Christian is walking an extremely narrow path, which is symbolic of the Christian life. Listen to this. He says this, I saw in my dream that a very deep ditch lay on the right hand the full length of the valley. It's the ditch in which the blind have led the blind throughout the ages and where both have miserably perished. And then on the left hand was this very dangerous quagmire into which, if a good man falls, he finds no bottom for his foot to stand on. This is the quagmire in which King David once fell and in which he would have been smothered if he who is able had not pulled him out. So, what a picture, right? Here's the picture. (laughs) In the Christian life, we need to be very, very careful because we are walking a narrow path. And if we veer off the path in either direction, there's great and terrible danger. So Bunyan says that if we're not careful, we could easily fall onto the slippery slope of false teaching, which is one side of the path. Very dangerous. And then he says that if we're not careful, we could also easily fall into the quagmire of sin, which too will ruin us, which is the other side of the path. So we need to be very circumspect. We need to be very careful. We need to be on guard. We need to watch our step. We need to tread carefully in this Christian life or else we could very easily slip and fall and 
great will be our fall. Great will be our fall. So please, take heed how you walk and walk circumspectly if you know what's good for you, spiritually speaking. In the garden, Jesus told Peter, James, and John to watch and pray lest they fall into temptation. And what happened to them? What did they do? They fell asleep, right? Too many Christians are asleep when they should be wide awake. In 1 Corinthians 10-12 it says, Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. So the warning here, be careful. Because if you're not careful, you're heading for a fall. Exodus 23-13 Be circumspect and make no mention of the name of other gods, nor let it be heard from your mouth. So be careful because false gods or idols of the heart can easily sneak in and take the place of the one true God. Proverbs 4, 25-27 Let your eyes look straight ahead and your eyelids look right before you. Ponder the path of your feet and let your ways be established. Do not turn to the right or to the left. Remove your foot from evil. So, be careful and watch where you're going because it's easy, it's very easy to get spiritually sidetracked. So guard your eyes and Guard your steps because sin is always ready to have its way with you. Deuteronomy 4.9 Only take heed to yourself and diligently keep yourself, lest you forget the things your eyes have seen, and lest they depart from your heart all the days of your life. So he's saying, be careful because it's easy to get comfortable. (laughs) It's easy to get complacent. It's easy to lose your first love and get caught up with this life and push God out, which is foolish and leads to a wasted spiritual life in the end. Joshua 22.5 says, But take careful heed to do the commandment and the law which Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you. To what? To love the Lord your God, to walk in all His ways, to keep His commandments, to hold fast to Him, and to serve Him with all your heart and with all your soul. So be careful. Because it's easy to get sidetracked in this fading life and it's easy to forget what truly, really matters. So the question is, are you walking carefully, circumspectly today in this spiritual minefield that we are in? Are you letting spiritual things slip? Are you looking at things you know that you shouldn't be looking at, doing things that you know are dangerous for your soul to do? Are you harboring a secret sin, maybe even right now? Are you in the Word and praying as much as you know you ought to be in these trying times? Are you getting way too comfortable and complacent in your faith, skipping when you should be carefully watching and walking? See, this is a firm warning for all of us today. The second truth to note from this passage is to walk wisely. Not walking as fools but as wise. The word for wise here is the Greek word sophoi, and the word for fool is the word ah sophoi, with the ah in front rendering it to mean the opposite of that which is wise, the opposite of that which is smart, the opposite of that which is intelligent. So the call here is to be smart instead of dumb when it comes to the Christian life. To be wise instead of a fool. To be sensible instead of irrational. So first, don't be a fool. Now, the height of foolish living is to deny God, right? Because as Psalm 14.1 says, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. So the height of folly is to deny God and to refuse to submit to Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. I mean, that has eternal consequences. That affects where you spend eternity. And what's more important than that? Right? 
I mean, that has eternal consequences. So won't you surrender to Christ in repentant faith and be saved from the wrath to come? That's the issue. Look, Jesus is God the Son who came here and became a man. 100% God and 100% man at the same time. He died for our sins according to the Scriptures. He was buried and He rose again on the third day according to the Scriptures. And everyone who believes in Him in true, saving, repentant faith, good news, they will be saved from the wrath to come. Amen? That's good news. Sin condemns us all. But Jesus paid the death penalty for our sins as believers on the cross. He became our substitute for sin. He died so all who believe could live and go to heaven instead of hell. And by grace through faith in Christ alone, you, yes you, can be saved from the eternal wages of all your sin. So again, won't you surrender? Won't you believe? Won't you repent and be saved from the wrath to come today? Fools reject this soul-saving message. But then on the other side, the wise person is the one who fears God and who turns away from evil. Job 28.28 So the wise person is the one who first turns to God in true, saving, repentant faith and who then lives that out in his or her life with action. As one preacher said, when a person is saved, he's moved from the realm of foolish into the realm of wisdom. And that's absolutely correct. And while we were once darkness, that's coming, (laughs) now in Christ we are light in the Lord, and that moves us to the wisdom category. He made us alive when we were dead. Now, what's interesting here is that Paul is no longer appealing to non-Christians like he was in verse 14, but rather, this is an appeal for Christians. Don't be fools, but be wise. He's talking to us. What then is Paul saying to us? To protect yourself spiritually speaking. That's it. To make sure you don't live like a Christian fool. That you don't revert to your own old sinful ways. That you don't put on the old deeds of darkness. But instead, you continually cast those dark deeds off day by day by day. And you put on the new spiritual clothes that God has given you that glorify Him. That's true Christian wisdom. Look, fools are casual and careless about their Bible intake, while the wise ones are diligent and hungry for the Word of God. They know that it's their one authority in their lives, and so they live by the book, and they love the book, and they seek out ways to put it into practice. Why? Because God's Word is powerful. It's living and it's active. It matures us, and it grows us up, and it teaches us what we need to know about the things that are eternally valuable, and it leads us to God. Wise souls pick it up and read it and ingest it and eat it up and live it out. Fools pray little. They are haphazard. They are lazy. They don't believe that it's all that powerful or all that effective, while the wise ones pray fervently and passionately and unceasingly because they know that God sovereignly works through the passionate prayers of His people in an amazing way, and they know that the effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man or woman avails much. Also, look, fools put up with sin in their lives. That's just height of folly. They embrace it. They, they make excuses for their sin. They let it get a foothold in their lives. They, they cuddle it. They harbor it. And they don't seek to kill it. Every single one. But the wise ones are those who see sin for what it truly is, a deadly enemy that can't 
ever be tolerated in our lives. Not ever. So the wise ones battle sin every sin. They see everyone as a deadly enemy and they hate it and they fight all sin fervently every single day until glory because that's what's needed for the God-pleasing, Christ-exalting life. What about you? Now, from what Paul said up to this point in Ephesians, the wise soul knows God and His Word and continues to be a learner, head, heart, and life. The wise soul loves Christ with passion and it shows. The wise soul walks worthy and endeavors to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. The wise soul uses his gifts to bless God and the people of God. The wise soul edifies other believers. The wise soul puts off the old and continually puts on the new. The wise soul battles sin. The wise soul doesn't lie. He tells the truth. He guards his words. He puts away wrath. He forgives. He walks in love. He imitates Christ. He shares his faith. He protects his spiritual life from evil enemies. He makes sure that his aim and direction is clear. He gets up and he continues on every single time that he stumbles and falls. He doesn't get content with mediocrity. He stays humble. He stays focused on Christ. He lives with eternity in view. He walks wisely and for the glory of God. And he knows that this isn't a side issue. No, this is it. Are you wise? Or are you foolish? Look, this is the most important issue in your life. Life is no plaything. Life is a precious commodity. It was given to you as the mightiest of possessions and it's filled with massive responsibilities and eternal things are at stake, including your soul. So what really matters? What really lasts? Only Christ. Only Christ and the things that honor Him. That is it. Everything else is vanity and a chasing after the wind. Look, this world apart from Christ has nothing lasting to offer you. This world's joys are fading and fleeting. This world's goods all rust and rot and they never truly satisfy. This world is miserable and empty. What this world has to offer leads to emptiness and to vanity in the end because Christ alone is the only one who can truly, truly satisfy. Money can't. Fame can't. Other people, even your spouse or your child can't. Drugs and alcohol can't. Sex cannot. Earthly goods cannot. Nothing can truly satisfy and fill the void except for Jesus Christ alone who saves and forgives and rescues us and gives us true purpose and meaning and makes everything else seem meaningless because guess what? It is compared to Him. Christ is your answer. Your only true answer for meaning and purpose and joy. Remember Solomon? In Ecclesiastes, Solomon had tried to find satisfaction through knowledge, through wealth, through material goods, through the pleasures of music, art, women, houses, and so many other earthly goods. But look, none of those earthly things brought lasting fulfillment because they can't. He concluded that it was all vanity. He concluded that it was all meaningless. Solomon observed that even if you have all these things, guess what? You live for a few years and then you die. So it's all futility. It's all a striving after the wind. And that's true, right? Apart from Christ, that's all true. It's like a child chasing bubbles around. He, he grabs one, but it bursts in his hand. He grabs another, but it too bursts in his hand. So is the mindset of the unsaved. Vainly chasing bubbles that burst. 
oh yes, apart from Christ, you can have a good job and marry a nice spouse and have a nice car and accumulate many earthly goods and have some children and so on. But, but then what? I mean, if you don't take God and eternity into consideration, what is really gained? You live a few years and you help a few people and you live perhaps a decent life and then you die and then what? This will all vanish. This will all fade away. And apart from Christ, it leads to hell in the end. What, what vanity. Look, only Christ matters and has true, lasting value. Only Christ. And wisdom says to consider these things. Some here today might ignore this. But why would you do that to yourself? Spurn the thing that can give you true peace and lasting meaning and joy. Ignore the thing that can truly fill the void that's making you miserable. Reject the thing that will lead to a truly meaningful life that makes even pain pale in comparison to Christ and to what He gives to us, not just now, but for all eternity in increasing measure. Lord, wake them up. (laughs) Christ is the answer for us. He's it. This world has nothing lasting to offer but emptiness. Christ is your answer. And you owe it to yourself to take Him seriously. And this goes for all of us today as well. We settle in. We coddle sin. We think okay is good enough. But doesn't Christ deserve more from us as His children that He died for to save? See? No judgment, just a challenge. For all of us, including myself. The third great truth to note from this passage is this, to redeem the time. Other versions say making the most of the time, but it literally means buying back or buying out. The word was used of buying back a slave in order to set him free, which is what redemption was all about. So the idea is this, that we are to buy up all the time that we have and devote it to the Lord. Life is short. Eternity is long, and we are to use the time that we have left to live wisely and for the glory of God. Time really does fly, anybody? Time flies. One said, time is a strange commodity. We can't save it, retrieve it, relive it, stretch it, borrow it, loan it, stop it, or store it. We can only use it or lose it. And he's right. In James 4, we find a people who are making plans without taking into account their own mortality and God's sovereignty, which isn't a Christian way to live. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a city and spend a year there and engage in business and make a profit. Yet you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. How true is that? I mean, we don't even know what will happen 10 minutes from now, let alone tomorrow or next year. See, these people were arrogantly assuming that they would wake up tomorrow, that they would safely get to the city, that their business venture would be successful within a year, and that no one would rob them of their income. They were presuming all these things about an unknown future that they had absolutely no control of and no guarantees about. But look, each of us could be gone tomorrow. So James says that life is short. Life is a vapor. Look, a a vapor is short-lived. You see the mist at one moment and a few minutes later it's gone. You see the steam coming off of your coffee cup and in just a second it, it disappears into the air. Life is like that. In Psalm 90, Moses laments the brevity of life. He compares life to the grass of the field that sprouts up in the morning and by evening it's faded under the hot sun. He writes in verse 10, 
As for the days of our life, they contain 70 years, or if due to strength, 80 years, yet their pride is but labor and sorrow, for soon it's gone and we fly away. He's absolutely right, and even if you live to be a hundred, oh, how quickly life flies by. That's why Moses prays, so teach us to number our days that we may present to you a heart of wisdom. So the wise soul, the circumspect soul, he lives not for this life, not really, but for the next life, for the life that lasts forever. And that's what Paul means when he says to redeem the time. Hey, we're all going to die, most likely. (laughs) Maybe not. But what are you going to do with the time you have left? Better make each day count, right? Better live without regrets as much as possible. Better live daily for that which has true eternal value. Robert Murray McShane said, Life is vanishing fast. Make haste for eternity. That's the call. That's the call for all of us. J.C. Ryle said, Years are slipping away and time is flying. Graveyards are filling and families are thinning. Death and judgment are getting nearer to us all. Awake before it's too late. And he's right. Is time having its way with you? 1 Peter 1.17 says to conduct yourself throughout the time of your stay here in fear. Psalm 39.4 says, Lord, make me to know my end and what is the extent of my days. Let me know how transient I am. Behold, you have made my days as handbreadths and my lifetime as nothing in your sight. Don't you see? There's no assurance of tomorrow. And what we do for God is all that matters. Don't waste your life. No. Redeem the precious time. Make haste for eternity. Listen to this, Charles Spurgeon. Don't think that you are stable things. Fancy not that you're standing still. You are not. Your pulses each moment beat the funeral marches to the tomb. You are chained to the chariot of rolling time. There's no bridling the steeds or leaping from the chariot. You are constantly in motion. And he's right. Or listen to this. Listen for one moment to the ticking of that clock. Everyone fell silent and the clock was ticking. It is the beating of the pulse of eternity. It's the footsteps of death pursuing you. Each time the clock ticks, death's footsteps are falling on the ground close behind you. And he's right. Time is flying. And wisdom says to redeem it. I have only just a minute, only 60 seconds in it. Forced upon me, can't refuse it, didn't seek it, didn't choose it. But it's up to me just how I use it. I must suffer if I lose it, give account if I abuse it. Just a tiny little minute, but eternity is in it. Look, the average... This is very sobering. The average human on earth lives to be about 80. That's about 960 months, about 29,000 days, or about 697,000 hours. Well, over a a third of those years, days, and hours are spent sleeping. An additional seven years will be spent trying to get to sleep. (laughs) On average, you'll spend just over 13 years of your life at work. Four and a half years of your life will be spent eating. On average, you will spend nearly eight and a half years watching TV. And people will spend over three years on social media. And I think that number is growing way beyond that even 
today. But on average, you will spend five years waiting in lines with roughly six months sitting at stoplights. You will spend over a year in the restroom. You'll spend a year looking for misplaced objects. On and on it goes, and it's depressing. And suddenly, one day, you're going to turn around and it's going to be over. Time will run out. Thus the call to redeem it. Because it's precious. How do you redeem it? You glorify God where He has you. Purposefully and thoughtfully. Adrian Rogers gave this advice regarding time. He said, one, learn to live in the eternal now. Today is the only day you have. Redeem the time today. Two, stop saying if I have time. You do have time. Three, stop worrying about tomorrow and stop waiting for tomorrow. Give God today and He will take care of tomorrow. Four, cut yourself loose from the past. Bury your failures in the grave of God's forgetfulness and let Him give you a brand new day. He's absolutely right. How do you do that practically? Again, you glorify God where He has you. Sleep is sleep, so a third of our time is just gone. (laughs) But what about the rest of our time? Well... You honor God at work and you honor God at home and you get into the Word more and you pray more because drawing near to Christ pleases Him and has eternal value. All of that matters to God. What else? You serve others and you show them the love of the Lord. You serve in a ministry. You fight sin and you pursue Christ in His glory. You represent Christ well right where He has you. Well, can I go on vacation and redeem the time? Yeah, but praise God on vacation. (laughs) Thank Him for the mountains and the ocean and wherever He has you and honor Him on vacation. Now, you can't redeem the time when you're sinning, but you can redeem the time even in the mundane things of life. It's probably best to not think of things in terms of minutes and hours so you don't get overwhelmed and depressed. But in terms of days, did I glorify God today? Did I redeem today for Him? If not, could I have done better with the precious time that He's given to me? If so. If not, then move on. If so, then Learn from it and honor God with the next day. Right? Serving Him. Drawing near to Him. Being in His Word. Praying. Fighting sin. Showing others to Christ and what He's like. Parenting in a God-honoring, Christ-exalting way. Being a God-pleasing spouse. Knowing that God is watching. Sharing your faith. Discipling others. Especially your own children. And so on. That's redeeming the time. What about you? What will you give to eternal things? Question. How do you live if you only had a couple of years left? I'm not talking about bucket list stuff. I'm talking about making the most of your last two years for the glory of God and redeeming the time for Him. What would you change? What would be different? Would you pray more? Would you study God's Word more so you can know Him more and thus please Him and draw ever closer to Him? Would you serve more people for the cause of Christ? Would, would you, your conversations be more God-centered? What would you do differently? Here's the issue. Shouldn't we live like that even if we knew that we had 50 years left? And shouldn't those things be a part of our lives regardless of the length of our, of our stay here? And isn't that what redeeming the time is all about? And then, of course, there's this. None of us knows how long we have anyhow. Because, again, tomorrow we could be gone. So the call is to make the most of every day for the glory of God. And if you blew it today, make the most of tomorrow for the glory of God. See? The call's clear. Redeem the time. It flies by. The more we use our time for God and His glory, the more we use our time for the things that truly matter and that have eternal value, the better. Don't waste your life away. No, redeem it. 
Be a faithful steward of the breath that God has given to you. One said, your time is short, your task is great, your master is urgent, and your reward is sure. That's right. The fourth great truth to note from these verses is to remember that the days are evil, evil indeed. It's interesting to note that the church in Ephesus was indeed facing evil times and times would get worse. At the time that Paul wrote this, the church was surrounded by paganism, heresy, immorality, and the like. But not long after Paul wrote this, Rome would begin persecuting the church in Ephesus. Believers were soon being burned, thrown to wild animals, boiled in hot oil, and terribly brutalized for their faith. And the church was called to be strong, to live for Christ in the midst of that, to redeem the time, and to be a bright light against the backdrop of the dark and evil times that they were living in. See, the evilness of the day should motivate us even more to redeem the time. The word evil describes that which is actively harmful, hurtful, and wicked, as opposed to that which is good and and God-honoring. The word is in the present tense, which means that this is a continuous evil because that's the world that we live in. In 2 Timothy, it says that the In the last days, perilous times will come. The last days referring to the period of time between Christ's first coming and His second coming. This tells us that in this church age that there are going to be times that are going to be troublesome for us in Christ. And while these times may ebb and flow, it's generally going to get worse the closer that we get to the end of the end. So yes, it was evil back in Paul's day, but guess what? It's still evil today, even though it may look a little bit differently. I mean... Satan's indeed the god of this world. The world lies under the sway of the wicked one, and the days are indeed evil. Therefore, in this present evil age, believers aren't to waste opportunities. Paul would have felt very strongly about this. Although the evil plots against him caused his imprisonment for the sake of the gospel, he still used every opportunity he could to proclaim the gospel even while he was imprisoned. And although believers are redeemed and prepared for the days to come, praise the Lord, hey, we still live in evil and wicked times. And our call isn't to fear those times. Our call isn't to avoid those times. No. The exhortation here is to walk wisely in these evil and dark days and to seize this great opportunity that we have to shine. Hey, don't you want to be in the thick of the battle? Don't you? I don't want to be a preacher where the light is bright. I don't. I want to be a preacher where there's great darkness. Because that's where we can shine brightest in the midst of that darkness. Hello, California. Right? We're here. But what an opportunity for us to have an impact. So don't let the God of this age intimidate you, no, but take advantage of every opportunity in this immoral and dark environment to live the life that pleases God. These days are evil, and they're going to get worse, I believe. But oh, what a great opportunity to make an impact. So make an impact. Redeem the time. Share Christ. Shine His light. Share the gospel. Live the gospel. And walk like God calls you to walk. I personally believe that we're living in very unique times. Very unique. And look, God wants us to be here right now in these times and in these unique days. What a privilege. What an opportunity. 
Well, let's shine and redeem the time and see what he does in us and through us because we're here for a reason. Thomas Watson said, don't be like a body in an atrophy. No, be most violent at last. Yeah, but a little time now to work for God. Therefore, work the harder. Your salvation is nearer now than when you first believe. And if it's nearer, your violence, your holy passion should be greater. And he's right. And mediocrity should be the last word to describe the Christian. No, fire should describe us. Zeal. Passion. Urgency. Fervency. That's what should describe us today, especially in these evil days. The fifth truth to note from this passage is to understand the will of God. Verse 17. Therefore, do not be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is. That takes us back to verse 15 when it says to walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise. He then says to redeem the time because the days are evil. And then he comes back around and says, therefore, or so then, don't be unwise, don't be a fool, no, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Now, how can we understand that? Well, the will of God that Paul's telling us to understand and comprehend and get a grasp on, it's not something that God's hiding from us. It's something that He's made known to us, or it's something that He will make known to us, which is what Paul does in the next few verses. And you'll get to that when you preach it later. But note that Paul isn't talking about God's will regarding uh, a move that you need to make, or or how to invest your money, or what kind of car to buy, or, or something like that. He's not talking about that. The will of God that Paul is talking about here is what God desires for all of His beloved children And it's something that He has indeed revealed to us in His Word. So we're talking about what God desires for all His children. And our call is to get a firm grasp on that so that we will then do it. In context, the will of God is for you to walk circumspectly and wisely, right? In context, the will of God is to hear and obey all the commands that Paul's already laid out for us in the book of Ephesians. Like what? Well, like walking as children of light, like being good and righteous and truthful, like imitating Christ and walking in love and battling sin and pursuing holiness and putting on the new man day by day and putting off the old man and the things that were associated with the old life of sin, like walking worthy, like serving and using our gifts to bless the body of Christ, like speaking words that edify and give grace and so on. That's the will of God for us. Or you could summarize God's will for us like this, to love God and to love others. Or you could summarize it like this, to glorify God. (laughs) That's the same thing that Paul says in verse 10. Find out what is acceptable to the Lord. Same thing. You see what Paul's doing? He wants us intently focused on God and on the things of God. Does everyone here live truly 100% like they ought to live? Anybody? Anybody? No. Thus, the continual reminders. These reminders aren't meant to bog you down in guilt, not at all. These reminders are meant to inspire you to keep pursuing these grand, eternal truths. Get focused, stay focused, and keep pursuing. That's what he's saying. Get up and keep going. Never quit. Keep pursuing because Christ and His glory is well worth it. And there's no better thing than honoring Him with your fast and fading life. There's no better thing than that. Amen? Amen. Amen. May God speak to our hearts. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, thank You for Your wonderful word of truth, Lord. I pray that these words would bring great encouragement to this church. That we would indeed 
glorify you, be wise, redeem the time, and stand up and stand out for you. May you use this church and these souls here. May you use us all for your glory. And may may we stay focused on the things that truly matter. Redeeming the time. Giving glory to you. Being used. And having an impact. And more than anything else, being well-pleasing to you, our God, whom we love with passion and fervor. Bless us now. Thank you for this time. In Jesus' name, amen.